You're now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Tommy, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Avi Zerlo, who's a ventures associate at Delphi Ventures, who's been focusing on, among other things, uh, ZK Tech to host a ZK series with me. Today, I'm joined by Ellie Ben Sassan, who's a ZK Stark co-inventor and the co-founder and president of Starkware and Zcash's founding scientist. Ellie, how's it going? Pretty good. Thank you very much, uh, Tommy and Avi, for having me on this podcast. Yeah, we're excited to host you as the first guest and most important on our ZK series. I don't say that to everybody. I'm sure you say it to all the girls. <laughs> let's, let's keep it here, but you never know. So Ellie, zero knowledge technology is described as an end game scalability and privacy technology for crypto. And we're hosting the most knowledgeable leaders to discuss its impact. Please tell us a bit about yourself and your work to, uh, to start off. Yeah, so I started off my career as a research uh, scientist, uh, I was doing something called theoretical computer science, uh, which is a branch of uh, math or somewhere between mathematics and uh, computer science. And I was working on um, things called, well, certain kinds of proofs called the uh, probabilistically checkable proofs or PCPs. And uh, then at some point around 2008, I actually started implementing um, some of the previous uh, theoretical works that uh, my collaborators and I have done. In 2013, uh, this was five years later, as I was chancing, uh, I mean, I was looking for ways to describe why implementing such proofs is, is, is a good idea. I stumbled upon the Bitcoin um, in the blockchain, in the Bitcoin conference in San Jose in 2013, so more than 10 years ago. And that's where I was uh, red-pilled and basically went down the path of uh, bringing uh, proofs to blockchains for scalability and privacy. Nice. I remember going to Israel with my partner, Medio, in, in 2019, and we met you and the team. And it was clear just the raw intellectual talent in Israel and around Starkware. Um, we, were, we were blown away. So to get started, you're the co-creator of ZK Stark Technology, of Starkware, of Cairo, there's likely no one in the world who understands the technical implementation and the impact that the technology will have on the world than you. So give us your candid sort of deep-seated beliefs on the overall impact of ZK technology to start us off. First, I'll say that I, I, I think you credited, me, you credited me with a bit too much. I'm actually not a co-creator of Cairo, though it came out of uh, brilliant people in our team, uh, Leo Goldberg and Charles Papini. Uh, and, and you mentioned the high power intellect that uh, we have at Starkware and in Starknet in general. And I think that's my greatest pride and joy, allowing the technology to attract so many smart folks. Yeah, so um, proving technology uh, that is often referred to as ZK has two aspects. One is the privacy aspect. Uh, it basically can hide some of the inputs into computations that go into computations, things like passwords or, you know, amounts of uh, money being paid. And that's usually what ZK refers to. There is a different aspect that actually now is even more flourishing, and that's with it has to do with scalability. It's not at all about privacy. It's the ability to uh, assert integrity using cryptographic proofs over vast amounts of computation, even over when executed over untrusted hardware uh, and uh, untrusted software. And it's that aspect, the scalability, that I'm more focused on, and we are more focused on in Starker. So just you know, you asked about the overall uh, 
arch or trajectory of uh, what is called ZK. Uh, I prefer to call it like cryptographic proofs. There are two aspects, the ZK aspect, which is privacy. And there's also the ability to scale things. And generally, you both, you know, you need the financial privacy as you have on Zcash. It was first shown on Zcash. But also you need the um, scalability on blockchains and really, um, uh, you know, uh, proofs uh, like Starks, like the stuff that we do, can deliver you both privacy and scalability and really help blockchains uh, achieve both global scale and be true to their mission of being the financial infrastructure of the world to come. That's great. And I know that you've spoken often historically about computational integrity and ZK Snarks and Starks is sort of a primitive for offering that feature to applications. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about what computational integrity is and, and why it's so important? I've come to realize that, first of all, blockchains are a technology for asserting integrity over financial transactions. And the traditional financial system is a different kind of technology that basically delivers integrity. Where integrity, I mean, in a very colloquial colloquial uh, form, it means uh, knowing that the right thing is done, even when you're not watching. So, you know, I trust my bank or the banking system as a whole to do the right thing with my funds, even when I'm not watching. And for different reasons, for very different reasons, I trust Bitcoin to do the right thing or Ethereum to do the right thing with my transactions, even when I'm not watching. So blockchains by themselves are a technology that enables uh, integrity. Now, proofs such as Starks and Snarks, they are a means to an end. And the end is integrity of computation. So what does it mean? Imagine you have some computer program. And the nice thing about these technologies is it can be any computer program. And you want someone, Darth Vader, to basically take this computer program and run it or run a number of transactions on them, on on you know on this computer, um, on this computation through process them through this program. How do you enforce integrity? How do you know that the right thing is being done even when you're not watching? How do you know that the output reported by Darth Vader is something that you would have gotten if you processed the same transactions with the same computer program? And it's a non-trivial problem. You know how can we trust the untrustworthy? And it turns out that mathematics and cryptography give you a magical way to assert integrity and to know that the right thing is being done with your funds and with arbitrary computer programs. And it is through this technology of Starks and Snarks that you can achieve this goal of knowing that a computation was done with integrity. Each and every step of it was carried out as if you would have done this or as if, you know, the, the most benevolent... Uh, player would have carried out that computation. I'd like to get your view on the difference between computational integrity and decentralization as both means to an end of sorts. That's a very good question. So each one of them can be, can be taken uh, on its own. So decentralization is, well, decentralization by itself doesn't give you integrity. A blockchain is a lot more, I mean, the internet is decentralized, but you can't really trust just the raw internet protocol, whatever, HTTP or, you know, SSL, these core protocols, they will not deliver you financial integrity. They're not suited for that, even though they're completely decentralized and peer-to-peer. -peer. So what happens in blockchains is that there's some, um, uh, well, what really makes blockchains unique, these protocols, 
is that the way they solve the problem of integrity is by means of defining a protocol that distributes value fairly to operators of the network and magically ties that value being distributed to the integrity of the system. So if you think about like Bitcoin miners, they are they operate a protocol. This protocol incentivizes them by distributing value. They get, you know, mining rewards and they get fees. And there's this amazing, beautiful protocol that Satoshi uh, invented that somehow ties the integrity of all of Bitcoin to this value being distributed to the miners. And a similar thing happens with, with Ethereum. And uh, so that's what blockchains do. It's not just decentralization. It's a magical game theory that sort of gets you integrity uh, by this very mysterious process of like distributing value and, and tying it to the integrity of the system. Now, a completely orthogonal, you know, completely unrelated tool uses math uh, you know, deep math and cryptography in order, it doesn't care about decentralization. It basically says, if I have some anchor of trust, some very weak and slow computer, but I completely trust it, it can now enforce integrity by cryptography and math over a vastly greater amount of computation, even when it is executed by a single untrusted operator. So how do we combine the two? You take blockchains and they give you integrity by, you know, this 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 game of distributing value and, and you know, this beautiful protocol like Bitcoin or Ethereum. But you get a very slow computation. Now you say, well, I really trust this computation. That's sort of your bootstrapping. You have this thing that is very slow, but very, very trustworthy. And now you can use the math to enforce using it. You can enforce integrity over an exponentially greater amount of computation. So the two really go well together. Your thoughts are incredible here, and I, we have a bunch more tactical questions, but I, I think it might make sense for those who aren't totally cued in just to get an overview of what you're doing at Starkware, right? The applications that you're enabling, the new possibilities that you're you're powering on the scalability and the privacy side. It might be a sort of a law basic question, but maybe just a brief overview of, of what you guys are building would be helpful. Right. So... We, we, we start with the technology that is Starks. And again, how, how should, you know, how do I describe this to my mom? Suppose you have this very trustworthy machine. You know, you really trust it. You have no doubt it's doing the right thing. It has integrity. It's doing the right thing even when you're not watching. And that's your blockchain. That's Ethereum. So you really trust it. But it's very slow. Now, there's this way to use this machine and run on it something that checks the integrity of huge amounts of computation. Think of it as it, you know, comes in and samples a few pieces. It's, it's like doing this inspection, you know, it just checks here and there. It's like doing sort of an audit of, of this vast amount of computation. But magically, or you know, through the magic of math, by doing these very simple inspections, you now know that the right thing is being done with this greater amount of computation. So how do we apply it? Uh, you know, Ethereum can process roughly 10 transactions per second or 20 transactions per second. And so you can think of it as a computer, let's say from 20 or 30 years ago that runs at, let's say, one kilohertz. So it can do 1,000 clock cycles or 1,000 operations, um, you know, per second. Okay, so some computer or whatever, the first PC, think of it as something like that, but you really trust it. 
And now someone wants to say, uh, well, you know, let me take the burden of processing transactions off of Ethereum and just process, uh, you know, a million of them and just report to you the new state of the system. Well, you can use your old trusted computer that is Ethereum in order to inspect and audit the integrity of this much faster but not trustworthy computer um, and know that it's doing the right thing even when you're not watching. So all of the systems we've built so far, and we've used it to process over a trillion dollars of value for our customers and process uh, over half a billion transactions on Ethereum, where the greatest source of scale on layer twos on Ethereum in terms of computational throughput. Uh, what we've done is we've used Ethereum to assert integrity over much vaster computations that have to deal with uh, amending of NFTs, with uh, sending tokens, transfers, trades, uh, perpetuals. And more recently, we've actually developed a programming language and uh, you know a whole layer two that allows developers to write arbitrary smart contracts and applications and you know, exponentially boost the power of Ethereum using the same mathematical technique that is Starks. That's incredible, Ellie. And yeah, we just had Antonio from DYDX on the podcast. And I know that you guys have been the, the technology partner for DYDX for their perpetuals uh, to date, and they've done an incredible amount of volume. It's a little bit hard to conceptualize. Do you think that people understand the integrities at scale that you're giving them? Like when I log on to DYDX, like when I use it, I, I sort of, it works, I love it. But the whole idea of this can't be messed with and, and there's no party to really, you know, screw with my transactions or user experience or funds. It, I don't know that people really understand that when they're just kind of going through the flow of using something. Do you, do you think people get that yet? They probably don't, but I think it's a good thing. You know, when, when I board a plane or when I take, uh, you know, some medication, I mean, you know, the risk I may be taking with my life, with my body, with my health is much, much greater than when I transact, uh, you know, financially uh, on a blockchain. Now, I don't know the first thing about how these, you know, big metal objects actually stay up in the air. So, but, but, but I do know that, uh, I mean, I do believe that there, there's very serious physics and math backing this, which is why I board them you know, with no worries and why I take a lot of medications and, and trust, you know, the scientists that have done this. So I think it's actually like, it's okay uh, for end users uh, to not know all of the technology that keeps them safe. Uh, that That's fine. So, I mean, the curious minded should probably want to learn more about, you know, math and technology behind it. But I think the end users, you know, my mom and dad, I don't think they should, uh, you know, they can be spared the uh, the math. Um, can we talk a little bit more now about the stack itself? And I know that there's many different components actually under the Starkware umbrella, Cairo, the language, the VM, uh, the prover, et cetera, et cetera. Can you lay the land for us? What's under the Starkware universe? So, um, well, first of all, we have like two main products. One is uh, StarkX, which is a SaaS business that uh, is meant for high throughput, um, you know, NFT and um, perpetual and uh, spot and uh, transfer partners like DYDX and ImmutableX and, you know, parties like that, so rare. And the one more interesting to, you know, just your, your you know, friendly neighborhood developer is StarkNet, 
which uh, again, we talked about, you know, do people understand everything that goes under the hood? Uh, probably not, and that's okay. So what happens is we created uh, this programming language in this uh, smart contract environment called Cairo and Starknet. And uh, you have uh, hundreds of developers around the world basically programming in this programming language. And what happens is that automatically um, integrity is asserted over their smart contracts using the technology of Starks, even though many of them are not aware of how this works, um, which, is, which is a good thing. So we created an abstraction layer uh, that is a programming language and a framework for, uh, for a blockchain. So it's much like Ethereum. And then you can just write your contracts and deploy them and uh, you know, build a front end and everyone can use the power of, and scale of starts without actually um, you know, going into details of how proofs are generated for all of these computations. You talk a bit more about the motivations or rather the constraints that prompted you to build Cairo, um, right? To rebuild this programming language from, from the ground up, um, you know, your own sort of virtual machine of sorts. When about going to scale blockchains, right? And sort of the, the common you know, VM that people have to scale being EVM. Can you talk a little bit more about the motivations and reasoning behind that? Yeah, so I like to describe Starkware as having our heads in the sky and our boots in the mud, meaning, uh, you know, we understand math at a very deep level. We understand, uh, you know, probably more than anyone else how Starks operate. Uh, and they're very complicated and, and tricky creatures to deal with. Um, but we also always put a first priority of reaching actual products and real usability. So initially, um, we came to customers, we asked them, you know, what do you want to scale? And they would say perpetuals or transfers. And then our very smart team sat and did a lot of math, very complicated math, to come up with the analog of uh, an ASIC, uh, a mathematical ASIC that captures, you know, a dedicated chip that captures this particular computation. And uh, just like in the physical, you know, with physical chips, building a chip is, is very complicated. And this, this art of building chips doesn't scale very well to, you know, when you get uh, to very large functionalities, at least not for us humans. So this was the first phase. And we built our first versions of StarkX in this way. But then the team realized that a better approach is, and this is exactly the way things also computers evolve. A better process is to build a general purpose CPU, which is the Cairo virtual machine, and then create a programming language for it so that humans, first of all, our, you know, we first of all consume our own dog food so that our talented engineers can, can write more complex functionality. This was the next phase. And then we said, well, this is a damn good computational model and virtual machine and programming language that is powerful enough to be put in the hands of all developers in the world. And that was the next phase, which led to the modern version of Cairo that is Rust-inspired, has very uh, high-grade safety features like linear types, and, um, and is very ergonomic. And a lot of developers experiencing it actually say that they uh, prefer it to other uh, smart contract languages today. To, to my understanding, Cairo is actually like a fully Turing-complete programming language, uh, which doesn't 
actually demand execution of programs within a smart contract environment. And I'm curious, like, what do you think, if at all, are sort of the prospects for verifiable computations written in Cairo that aren't necessarily computationally enforced with integrity by blockchains? Um, so maybe the world of ZK beyond blockchains, because I know that in your early days, you've had some thoughts around this. Yeah. So like if you were to, I mean, here's a thought experiment. Suppose, God forbid, the price of uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and all the other top 100 tokens is, uh, you know, one cent per token. So basically the whole market crashed. And, you know, then we at Starkware, among many other companies, would have to pivot, right? And say, okay, uh, you know, no more game over on blockchain. First of all, it would be very, very hard to find um, other areas that there is such a natural fit. Um, and the reason is, right, you need to be in a world where the business reality is that you really do not want to trust this other large computer. Now, you would say, let's apply it to the banking world, right? Wouldn't it be great if my bank proves to me that it operated with integrity? Well, I agree it would be great, but as a business um, to try and convince the banks to actually accept this, it's probably a decade out. And if it ever happens, which I believe it will, it will go through blockchains first, just like cloud computation. First, you know, you had the internet and marvelous things on it. And then all the companies of the world said, oh, you know what, let's, let's move to the cloud. So I think something like this is going to happen with banking. Nevertheless, suppose you had to uh, find another application. I would probably go to the world of uh, security, like uh, SSL certificates, you know, um, basically, well, here's one example. If you are, uh, you know, your browser, when it accesses a website today, there are like 50 or 100 or more sources that are coming to your computer. You would like, so, so now you either you need to check the SSL certificates of all of them and that they're all okay with revocation lists or things like that. Or you could actually throw it on this other website and say, you know, please prove to me that you have gone to all of the relevant sites and checked uh, that, that uh, all of these certificates are good and give me just one succinct proof for that. That would be maybe one application. Any new ZK company, I would advise it to, first of all, focus on blockchain. I think it's much more, uh, it's a better business uh, avenue. Ellie, can we talk a bit about I mean, every project in crypto has sort of its constraints, right? The things that you're trying to fix within your stack that are either solvable or just, you know, out of the realm of solvable and you sort of have to make uh, decisions on what to do. What is the most, I don't know, maybe the biggest constraint or hurdle in this tech stack for you right now that you're maybe not worried about, but, you know, are eager to fix over the next couple of years? Well, um, the nice thing about bottlenecks is that they never go away and you, you know, you open one bottleneck and then you get higher throughput and then you reach the next. So in terms of bottlenecks, our bottlenecks are all right now in the world of the sequencer. So before the prover, uh, the proving technology can scale, you know, easily to a thousand TPS and more. Uh, but before you start running the prover, you actually have to sequence and process all transactions and make sure that the, you know, that they're okay before you start running the provers on. For us currently, this is a bottleneck. We've been going through iterations of, uh, you know, opening up and improving various things in this bottleneck. And today we can probably effectively reach a TPS of uh, 50 and sometimes reaching over 100 TPS. 
Uh, but we still want to, you know, remove a few other bottlenecks within that particular stack. Beyond that, uh, another thing that never keeps improving is basically just, uh, or you never have enough of, is improving functionality. Just like we see with programming languages or, you know, the Linux kernel, each new version, uh, there's never going to be a last version. You want to add more features, make things more efficient. Uh, so that's another thing that we constantly fret about. And there we care about it both in the context of Cairo, the raw programming language, but also in the context of uh, StarkNet. Um, you know, the kind of, uh, so things we're thinking about right now are data availability and reducing costs, integration with uh, EIP 4844, um, uh, more advanced fee market and, and things of that sort. Ellie, thank you for that. Can you maybe just double click on the impact of decentralizing the sequencer? Like, what does it look like if you're unable to do that? Like, what are the risk factors to, you know, Avi or myself? If I'm using an app on Starkware and that ends up not being decentralized in any, you know, in due time, well, it sort of defeats the purpose. Uh, if if we don't reach decentralization and it just stays forever centralized, I mean, right now there are some components of the stack that are centralized, and we're moving as fast as we can to decentralize them. You know, we open source the prover, we open source parts of the sequencer, and we'll be going on and on doing this. We've published research on how to do decentralized sequencing improving, and we'll be implementing that. But suppose for some reason we, we just don't do that, which I don't think, well, you know, as long as we're alive and, and working on it, this is a strategic goal and we'll reach it. Um, in that case, if you think about it, it's really, you don't need the proofs, really. Uh, it's basically a proof of authority system. You basically, people will say, you know, oh, think of Stark, where or the starting foundation whoever is operating the system is some you know bank or financial institution am i fine with them doing these things that's one thing and uh, at the same time all kinds of regulatory constraints may start piling up um and you will basically be uh, untrue to what a true uh, blockchain is which is about uh, you know we talked about this way of using decentralization for asserting integrity so it's really not an option for us uh, at StarkNet not to decentralize the full stack. It just, uh, you know, being true to the technology just calls for that. So it's, we are going to do that. Uh, you mentioned you uh, at Starkware, you think of yourselves, your head in the sky, boots in the mud. I love that analogy. And I'm curious, when your heads are up in the sky, what is the future of, you know, the ZK landscape and, and Starkware look like, you know, five years out? Oh, yeah. So first of all, the future is very bright, both for general uh, proving technology and for, um, I prefer to call it validity proofs because it's, uh, you know, emphasizes sort of the integrity and the fact that it shows that things are valid and ZK sort of hints at the privacy. So I respect the fact that everyone calls it ZK, but I prefer to talk about validity proofs. So I think the, the future is very bright um, for both Starkware and, and the whole validity proofs uh, ecosystem. What I think is going to happen is that First of all, over blockchains, um, I mean, five years from now, and maybe even before that, looking back, people will say, okay, so this was what was needed in order for blockchains to reach global scale. This is the big unclogging. And I mean, if you think about the TPS levels, right, the transaction per second levels demanded by uh, global payment systems, you know, Visa, 
and so on and so forth. You're talking about uh, thousands of uh, TPS transactions per second. And this can practically only be delivered by validity rollups. And I think the best in terms of scale are Starks. So I think looking back five years from now, it's always going to converge on Starks. I think it's all going to converge also on dedicated VMs that are best at doing validity rollups. And I think probably a very large fraction will, will, will concentrate on Cairo because it's the first and best um, in terms of you know production grade stuff. And we'll just see a proliferation of layer threes and uh, client side proving and uh, you know validity of code processors and so on and so forth. And in this world of uh, ab abundance for, for validity proofs, call it, and developer tooling, mature security frameworks, um, low overhead costs or near negligible overhead costs in terms of computational you know, uh, resources and knowledge resources. Why use anything other than a ZK proof or validity proof to ensure computational integrity? Why would I ever want to use, say, a fraud proof or another type of proof to enforce that integrity? I don't think you will. Um, um, so I think uh, I think within blockchains, I mean, it's not just I. I mean, you know, Vitalik once uh, said that he thinks that uh, fraud proofs are the uh, midterm solution and the long-term solution is uh, the rollups. Uh, this is evidenced by many things. Uh, I think that several of the fraud proof systems, I mean, first of all, you know, from a technological point of view, um, it's sort of this uh, well-known secret that they don't, actually run the fraud proof technology as specified by the security. Meaning you cannot put like whatever one ether and start a fraud proof. And I think even an optimism, no one can. So I think an arbitrum, there's a whitelist of those who can, but you and I can't and on optimism, no one can. So A, the fraud proof technology hasn't really been proven to be working as intended as claimed, right? That end users can each one of them raise a flag. Whereas uh, validity proofs, you know, we've been running them since I think summer 2020, as intended. Um, everything we do comes with uh, validity proofs, and I think that of late, uh, many of the fraud proof teams are saying that they will start adding validity proofs. So I think even they sort of acknowledge this is a better long-term solution. So I think that long-term there will be. Uh, just like today, there aren't really true uh, fraud proofs. I think they, they won't be uh, a thing, you know, at some point in the future. Appreciate your your opinion there. Um, and obviously, kudos, because you had a lot of the foresight many years ago to commit to building those. Staying in this world, uh, this future world, what or how, how critical of a role does Ethereum um, play in this CK singularity validity proof universe, where all computations are being done, you know, sort of off chain. Are there other L1s that exist that are used for verification and enforcing that computational integrity? And how important is Ethereum's role in that universe? It's a very good question. In the end, um, well, both blockchains and layer twos are means to an end. And the end is uh, the implementation of social functions of things that human societies care about, you know, money, um, governance, um, property rights, things like that. So, uh, and all of these are things that demand broad social consensus about their integrity. Take money, for example, certainly in its digital form, the value of money necessitates that we all 
consensus around and agree that money is functioning with integrity. And so at the end of the day, this is about broad social consensus. You and I and people in Argentina and in Africa and in the Far East and in Europe and America need to consensus and agree that blockchain X, whatever X is, is, you know, is good, has integrity. Now, right now, I think the two blockchains that, that have that property more than any, any other are, of course, Bitcoin and Ethereum, where Bitcoin is the first, uh, and it's amazingly important, but it is not Turing complete. So in particular, you don't have an OP Stark on it, and you can't add validity rollups, and you can't scale. And Ethereum is, uh, is the second one that is, or, you know, depending on how you view it, but certainly in terms of Turing completeness and ability to deploy anything, it is the most important. Now, that's the situation today. Whether it remains that same situation in five or 10 years, uh, you know, I hope so. I, I align with Ethereum values. I think it's an amazing system, um, an amazing culture, an amazing ecosystem. But, you know, this is a question about human and social um, domain. It's not about technology. The Ethereum technology has already been forked and copied many, many times. So it's about would Ethereum maintain the leadership in terms of its culture? Uh, and I, I, I hope and believe that's the case, but it, uh, there are no guarantees here. This might uh, be just technically way off base, so, so let me know if I am here. But is there a future in which Starkware no longer needs Ethereum, right? Where, where there's a future where you, know, you don't have to end up settling there and you're using something else or your own? Yeah, I might be a little off base here. It might be spicier, but, but curious your thoughts. No, but I, I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a, a mathematician and a person who's like true to definitions. So I can think of several hypothetical scenarios, hypothetical, in which case um, Starknet, let's say, can no longer rely on Ethereum. Suppose Ethereum just uh, it no longer has the broad social consensus because, and now you can start having all sorts, you know, it's being attacked by state nations or someone bought all of the stake in the world, you know, kind of like a Goldfinger-like movie uh, to take the James Bond analogy, whatever. Someone accumulates all of the ether stake and decides to attack the system. So, I mean, these are hypothetical scenarios today, but in that case, the basic layer of uh, being a layer two means that your core of integrity relies on some layer one that is trusted by, by all. So right now, Ethereum is that. But in a hypothetical scenario where for some reason um, um, that ceases to be the case, then certainly Starknet will, will, start, uh, will need to you know, figure its way, right? What, what are we doing here? Can we trust this? You know, what is this slow but very trustworthy computer? Is it still Ethereum? So that's one hypothetical scenario. Um, and, you know, you could, you know, again, construe others. But... Frankly, no one is uh, considering any of these seriously today because we have a lot of uh, trust uh, in Ethereum's leadership. Just taking that hypothetical like one step further, it's something you you know you have to plan for ahead of time, right? There's a lot of really intense technology here, and moving would be would be tough. What exactly would that look like if you had to move off of Ethereum? Would that be a different L1 or yeah? Apologies for the the follow up, but just kind of curious. The easiest would be suppose. There is some Ethereum, whatever, Ethereum Classic. Okay, let's just take, suppose, and I'm assuming you're, I don't know enough about Ethereum Classic, but let's suppose, and again, I'm speaking about 
hypotheticals. So let's suppose that Ethereum Classic is all the time following, uh, you know, Ethereum's pull requests and is basically one-to-one technologically the same. Okay, so now suppose that Ethereum became like really uh, bad and just the general public doesn't trust it anymore, but Ethereum Classic is like everyone loves it. So from a technological point of view, that would be the simplest transition. It is still a very non-trivial one because, you know, you will, well, it's a little bit like a fork, you know, you will have a certain state on both Ethereum and Ethereum Classic and basically think of USDC. So, you know, there's $1 of USDC, let's say, uh, and you sort of clone it, let's say, to Ethereum Classic. So somehow the USDC banks would have to decide uh, which, which, you know, which version are they willing to listen to. I mean, that's sort of uh, now the farther something is from uh, from from Ethereum EVM, uh, the harder this would be. But you could have similar cases. So that's if you have a, an alternative layer one to sort of use as your weak computer. Now, suppose there's no more, uh, again, I think this would be a really, really bad and unimaginable situation because basically it's saying no one is trusting anymore any of the layer ones, but for some mysterious reason, they're still willing to put any value in a layer two, which is doesn't sound reasonable to me, but still, I'm just, as a mathematician, um, I guess you would need to somehow jumpstart from being an L2, being an L1, which again, sounds very hard. Um, so yeah, I don't know how to do that, but, uh, theoretically it could be done. I mean, just like, you know, Zcash is a layer one that has validity proofs. Mina is a layer one with validity proofs and there are a bunch of others. So like you could do some highly difficult technological transition by which you no more, no longer need a layer one, but, uh, you know, I pity those who would need to deal with that. And anyways, it would be a very sad uh, world to live in. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. It definitely would. Ellie, just zooming out a bit, um, the ZK space has gotten really competitive and really busy over the past couple of quarters, right? And I've sort of bucketed it probably incorrectly into three main buckets, which are, you know, ZK EVMs, you know, directly compatible with Ethereum, ZK VMs, you know, folks like you and Risero and Aztec um, use their own language, but but use Ethereum. And then sort of like standalone ZK blockchains like Mina, Aleo, things like that. Sometimes I get a little confused as to the end game, right? Because there's dozens of teams building in each of those buckets. And from an economic or competitive point of view, it, it's hard to imagine everybody sort of winning. I, I know you have your own, you know, your strong bet here on the ZKVM side, but could you maybe just walk us through the the pros and cons of each of these designs or each of these buckets? Because it, it gets a little you know, confusing from the outside when you're looking at all these at once. So I, I agree with you that, well, what I think is that the um, proving technology will be commoditized, just like PCs are commoditized, or even, you know, blockchains are commoditized. I think it's very, the fact that you have probably more than 10,000 layer ones, I don't know how many, but you definitely have dozens of layer ones. And I mean, you could basically, right, fork uh, Bitcoin, call it Dogecoin or whatever, Shiba coin, and maybe tweak one or two things and you have a new uh, blockchain. So like layer one technology is commoditized. I have no doubt that uh, validity proving technology will be commoditized uh, in many different aspects, which means that uh, if you look at like, I think layer two is the important thing is which ones will achieve um, integrity and broad social consensus that they are uh, trustworthy. 
and uh, the jury is out there about all the year twos. Uh, I hope it will be startling, but uh, you know, I can't, I can't really predict this. I do predict that uh, just proving technology will be commoditized. It's already a little bit like that today. You know, there are a bunch of open source uh, proving stacks that you could just you know take and start building whatever it is. Which then means that okay, so there'll be probably a small number of ecosystems that capture a lot of the value, uh, just like you see with blockchain. I mean, right? There are thousands of blockchains, but it's like exponentially decreasing in value. And then. Um, You'll just see a lot of usage in the in like a, you know in a commoditized sort of way, you know, services and so on, where the way to monetize will be um, um, just like in you know the PC world, uh, you know, you'll have uh, software as a service or maybe proving as a service or various dedicated uh, you know, databases, provable databases, and so on and so forth. Ellie, just one one more follow up on that one, like zk EVMs, like your competitors with Scroll and Polygon and Linea and ZK Sync and others, there's way less functionality there, but you could bring like existing, existing Ethereum applications, the users, liquidity, things like that. Do you ever see a world where that's sort of good enough? Like where, hey, you know, it's not as efficient as a Starkware, right? But it's easy, it's approachable, the barriers to entry are lower and that's what wins? Or how are you thinking about that side? Oh, I definitely can theoretically see this thing uh, exactly as you described that, uh, uh, you know, you basically do copy pasta and, uh, and uh, everything works automatically. Uh, the reality is that it's not as easy even to do that. And then you lose a lot of the scale benefits. Uh, so if you just want to take pure solidity and just, you know, press a button and generate a proof for it, you'll probably lose most of all the scale that you get from uh, using uh, validity proofs just because uh, it's it's the wrong or it's an inefficient um, virtual machine. So, which is why we went with the Cairo approach and we think uh, it's better. And then, um, so liquidity, I'm certainly not worried about in the sense that liquidity is like really uh, moves around very, very quickly and goes to the place where it makes most sense. You know, the dApps of the world are basically, you know, they have very strong incentive to make it easy for the liquidity to move. So I don't think liquidity will have a problem. And then developers, all I can say is that the statistics, if you look at the Electric Coin Capital's report, you see that um, Starknet, even though it has this uh, new and weird uh, or claimed to be weird uh, programming language, which is Cairo, is the largest ecosystem across all blockchains that has seen positive growth and significant positive growth over the past 12 months. So Ethereum, Bitcoin, Solana, Polygon, they've seen either no movement or you know some of them double digit reduction in the number of full-time developers developing over them. Stark net over the past 12 month period measured by Electric Coin Capital is the 11th largest and the first one to have positive growth and it's 38% growth in full-time developers. So it basically shows that uh, you know developers are coming, and I think this trend will only increase. No, I, I love that that take. And Ali, one last follow up on this topic. So for the listeners, we're comparing zk EVMs, which you could bring existing Ethereum applications to zk VMs like Starkware, which is an exact, which isn't exact EVM equivalents, but it's more efficient. Is there, um, you know, what sort of constraints do you think? people will eventually see on the ZK EVM side? Like from the user perspective, is it higher costs? Is it 
a lack of functionality in applications that you could otherwise build on Starkware. Like, like how do you how are the constraints of zk EVMs like surfaced and and felt by end users or developers? I think the end users will notice um, limited. Uh, you know, it won't be as much of a fun place to be because, for instance some cool, beautiful applications like, you know, very elaborate on-chain gaming. You just won't find it uh, on the, uh, you know, EVM compatible on the Validity EVMs. You just won't have it. So, like, as an end user, you'll say, oh, I want to play the game by influence or, you know, go on Cartridge or one of these, uh, you know, Dojo. These are all projects that are like, really, really nice um, that are on StarkNet. And you just won't have any analog for them on the uh, ZK EVMs. So that will be one thing. Just the cool stuff will not be found anywhere else. And then I think that also liquidity will also, you know, as an end user, you'll say, I mean, I'm sure that like for things like DeFi and so on, the the UI will be really good in all of them. Well, slightly better because of account abstraction on StarkNet. So you can use whatever your Apple phone and your uh, it's called fingerprint or something. It will be very seamless. But you'll see just that like better prices and lower liquidity, sorry, higher liquidity. And like, uh, you know, you just like you go today to Uniswap because all liquidity is there and all liquidity is there is because they're like the first to really come up with something that sort of made a lot of sense to many, um, many, uh, market makers, something like that is going to happen, uh, with, let's say with DeFi. So summarizing as an end user, there'll be a lot of cool stuff that you could only find on StarkNet, like on-chain gaming. And also in terms of, you know, better prices and faster transaction times and better liquidity, you'll also see that on Starkner more than you'll see on the ZK VMs. Elia, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about ZK research um, or proof system research without getting too lost in the weeds. And we know it's an incredibly complex field of research, um, many sort of layers of complexity, um, you know, added on top of each other. And it seemingly come out of nowhere at least to market in the last five years, largely funded by crypto and blockchain startups. But we also know that it's you know, been around for several decades, right? Sort of theoretically. Uh, the implementation of proof systems has come a very far way in a quite short amount of time. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, are we nearing the end or a slowdown of proof system innovation in research? Are we converging on uh, proof systems and uh, methods that uh, are sort of going to be widely accepted, or is there quite a bit more creativity left? So in science, there's always more creativity um, to be found. And making predictions about scientific breakthroughs is always uh, very risky. So, And I'm an optimist, so I think there'll be a lot more surprising results, um, just generally speaking, in science. A different question is that of standardization and what will be uh, adopted. Uh, I'll give an analogy. Like if you think about like Google, so Google famously started from this uh, white paper about an algorithm called PageRank, which was one of the huge class of algorithms that basically use something known as spectral graph theory and all kinds of things related to matrices and random walks on, you know, things, well, a certain area of math that had many, you know, thousands of papers before and after the page rank. And then, and I'm sure it's evolved. It's not my field of research, but I'm sure it's evolved. You know, it's seen thousands of papers since then. And same thing with AI. 
another field that I know nothing about. What I do hope will happen is, first of all, I do hope and believe that um, a certain family of, of uh, proof systems will prevail. I both believe it and I hope it. And those are transparent systems that do not use uh, you know, elliptic curves or large prime numbers because I think they're both inefficient and they're very risky, uh, taking a long-term future-proof kind of view. Because I think you know, we know that quantum computers will break them and they have a lot of uh, structure, which is bad in the cryptographic system because structure allows you know, brilliant mathematicians to attack them. So I believe and hope that the proof systems that will prevail are going to be things like Starts and Fry, but there are other protocols like, uh, you know, there's a beautiful protocol by GKR um, that basically uses, even in certain settings, no cryptographic assumptions. So things that are transparent, have no trusted setup, do not require assumptions about factoring being hard, I think those will prevail. And whether, uh, for instance, in particular things like Fry um, will always be used uh i don't know i you know it's just very hard to see what what's around the corner um there's not that much to save in certain parameters uh there so um and it's certainly well established and understood but uh whether 10 years from now we'll know if something just just drastically i'll give one example um those who have a math background know what polynomials are and all of the proof systems that are out there today use polynomials. Now, there's nothing in math that prevents you from building even better systems that just do not use polynomials at all. At all. And there are certain areas that are related to proofs, uh, things like locally testable codes and locally decodable codes, all kinds of mathematical creatures that we know today to do even better with no reference to polynomials. So like maybe 10 years from now, there'll be some completely different way a mathematical way to get even better proofs, but it's just very hard for me to uh, speculate on mathematical breakthroughs. Yeah, that, that'd be quite interesting. To get a, a little more or deeper understanding of sort of the surprise and creativity that happens when you're at sort of the frontier of, of science, can you recall on a research development or advancement that really surprised you? That was totally unexpected in the world of sort of ZK proof systems. Is, is there something that comes to mind, uh, an advancement that comes to mind? Oh, there's so many of them. Well, even just the basic uh, papers like uh, some check protocol and the PCP theorem, these are papers from the 1990s. The whole notion of zero knowledge proof from 1985. In more recent times, well, there was this. Many of these results are, are not practical today, um, but but I'll still mention them. So like going back in time, very recently there was, I mentioned these like things that do not involve polynomials and in certain related settings, they do even much better than what we know to do with polynomials. So there were two papers that were a really beautiful breakthrough on this area of error correcting codes that are called locally testable. And then uh, something related quantum uh, LDPC codes and like two separate papers from roughly a year or two ago showed that you can get like linear sized uh, um, uh, you know codes in this so it like and they don't use anything about polynomials they use some some beautiful um, logical theory and simplicial complexes and things uh, coming from other areas of math uh, before that there was this 
just amazingly surprising new result that said that if you are in the quantum world, you can uh, basically the power of, uh, well, proof systems, um, what's called multi-prover interactive proof systems in the quantum setting is basically as powerful as computation. So it's even more powerful than thing like Starks, things like Starks and Snarks. Instead of reaching to non-deterministic exponential time, they reach to this class that is called recursively enumerable computation, which is basically all computer programs that you can define. And uh, yeah, those are like some very recent amazing breakthroughs that unfortunately have nothing to do uh, today with practical systems, but you know, we should wait 30 years and see maybe they'll become practical. Ellie, switching gears a little bit as we get to the, the top of the pod, I know we could probably do an entire episode on AI, but there's a lot of calls uh, to action in the AI space about integrity, right? A lot of the things that you mentioned when Avi asked earlier in the, the episode, things like making sure when you ask a question that you know the model actually gets that prompt or making sure the model runs correctly or making sure you know WorldCoin doesn't steal your entire identity, right? Could you maybe give a sense of how you think ZK and AI will interplay in the future? I'm a bit skeptical on that, to be honest. Um, I know everyone, I mean, there's this tendency to take, uh, you know, the hot topic of the day and put it with some other things. So I remember a few years ago was IoT blockchains, right? Internet of Thing blockchain. And so um, now I may be wrong, but I think, I mean, AI is certainly the hot topic of uh, this year and maybe a few years back and to come. Um, in many cases, I mean, there are two problems with like bringing it into the realm of validity proofs. One is that when people talk about fairness and integrity and things like that, the core of the problem is defining what is fair and right. You know, you need to specify for validity proofs to come in or ZK proofs to come in, you have to start with a computer program. Say, this is the computer program that I just want you to prove to me that this is how you acted. And in many settings, that is hard to define. You know, like when people talk about AI making predictions about bail, uh, you know, setting bail based on statistical um, uh, evidence of how likely is a person to skip bail. And then it turns out that this uh, disenfranchises uh, people of color. So now the question is, as a computer scientist, okay, okay, so what is the right algorithm? You know, if you give me the right algorithm, I can start uh, proving things about it. But the question, it gets very tricky because you have the data on one side, but then you have all of these ethical and societal questions, social questions of what is the right thing. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that in many settings, it's a little bit like with your bank. You know, you do have today these entities that just have vast amounts of computation. And, uh, you know, you would like them to prove to you that they acted with integrity. But in many cases, you know, their reputation and all kinds of legal things and so on and so forth will already make them do that. So why exactly would you want the proof slapped on top of that? So those are my two issues with, uh, you know, will we see a lot of uh, AI with ZK as business, uh, you know, viable business in the near future? But they may be wrong. Ellie, do you see a way to build that subjectivity back in? Is it is it as simple as running the AI model and then a human giving their opinion of it? Or Yeah, but then the whole point of a proof goes away. Like, yeah, sure, you could do that. But that what exactly was proved? Like uh, that someone that you trust. So it's all about, if you're anyways trusting, right, if you don't trust that person, then maybe he's just completely uh, giving feedback that, that completely messes up. things. And if you do trust that person, then why do you need the proof? Uh, so it could work, but then, you know, why run a prover? I'm just so happy 
that you know that Satoshi invented this marvelous thing. I, I still remember in 2013 when I gave I was walking around universities giving a talk about the technology that I was building with my peers, you know, students, collaborators, and I was looking for examples to say where are you going to use it. And most of these were in Web two worlds, and they just didn't make sense, even not to me. And then when I got off the podium in this conference in 2013 in, in San Jose, and you know people like Greg Maxwell and Mike Hearn, and they came up and they said, "Okay, where's the code? Because like here are like five examples we're going to do with it tomorrow." And I was like, "No, man, you don't really mean this. You're just trying to be polite." And they said, "No, no, we really, really need this. We we just." need this thing and it just blew my mind away. So I'm really happy that blockchains exist. And my one advice to anyone doing ZK today, applied ZK, look at the blockchain application, study blockchains. I think that's the first and best place for you to deploy it probably. One of my favorite takes on blockchains product market fit uh, is, is from a, a founder that I had a conversation with a few months back in that blockchains and crypto at the very least, has funded very fundamental cryptography research um, and pushed that space forward, you know, years, um, years faster, faster than it ever could have in an academic setting. Um, so good to hear uh, you share a similar view. I want to jump in and, and ask you an open-ended question. You can give your opinion or not, but when is Ethereum going to go to a full ZKL1, if at all? I mean, I'm not the right person to ask this. Like, well, I don't know if at all, and like, I don't know, because like, you have already this ability to verify things, right? And the L2s, I think led by StarkNet, are going to go ballistic and have like a ton of use cases and transactions and whatnot. Will Ethereum want to, and uh, and will it be needed for it to, um, to go and become a full ZKL1? Yeah, I'm not the right person. You should ask, I don't know, Vitalik or other. Do, do, do you see any merit in sort of the succinct blockchain architecture in that you, you know, you can maybe sort of bring constant state size, maybe lower full node requirements? No, I don't believe in the constant state size. I think it's a great uh, promotion, but like in the end, suppose proofs cost zero. In the end, like state and data availability are, are really important, right? If I don't know, like if you have uh, 10 billion people on the face of the earth and each one of them has a few accounts and some, you know, NFTs and whatnot, it's not going to be constant size. We always want more and more. So even if proofs are, uh, I mean, by now on StarkNet, the proofs are negligible with respect to the data. So even if you just completely eliminate them, which is fine, uh, you still don't have constant size. I think it's a great marketing term, but it, I don't believe in a constant size uh, uh, blockchain. That's uh, just a fantasy. Ellie, I want to thank you so much for joining. Um, we want to keep this to the hour for the listeners and, and to respect your time, but really appreciate you coming on. Your, all the technology that you've built in the Starkware team and all the research has definitely moved the space forward. So we really appreciate your time. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Avi. And thank you to the listeners who have been listening to us. Thank you.